Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. Join Andy Schneider, National Spokesperson for the USDA APHIS Avian Health Program, Editor-in-Chief of Chicken Whisperer Magazine, and author of The Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, Chicken Fact or Chicken Poop, and Zero Waste Chicken Keeping, as he welcomes top poultry veterinarians, poultry scientists, and poultry nutritionists to discuss the hot topics in the poultry world today and provide science-based, fact-based, study-based information to help you raise the healthiest poultry possible. And now, here's your host, Andy Schneider. All righty. Let's get ready for another great episode of Poultry Research Translated with my good friend, poultry scientist, Dr. Bridget McCray today. But first, we've got some host chat to get through. Man, it is, it's been super, super busy here on the farm. Uh, this morning, my wife had Chicken Whisperer Farm School and uh, it was her storybook farm class, so we had uh, several um, young children come out today to learn about agriculture, and that class is from 10.30 to 11.30, and then about 12.10, uh, we had some folks come out to look at some of our great Pyrenees puppies we have for sale here on the farm, and um, uh, though that sale is currently uh, pending, and then, of course, getting everything situated and signing up the new vendors at Cooptastic and attendees at Cooptastic, uh, it's just been a very, very busy morning. I know we were uh, in store for a busy morning soon because uh, the last few days have been a little bit slow around here, so I knew we would, everything would catch up to us sooner or later, and, of course, sooner being this morning. But uh, it's been really busy, but we're having a great time here on Chicken Whisperer Farm School. Wow, um, Cooptastic is barreling along. It is absolutely uh, so exciting to see the folks that are interested in attending. Um, and uh, I want to let you guys know that all of the speakers now have been confirmed. We've got speakers uh, coming to Cooptastic from uh, North Carolina State University. We have speakers that are going to be there from Auburn University and speakers that are going to be attending from the University of Georgia. Three amazing poultry science department uh, universities here. Uh, they're going to be represented at Cooptastic 2020. I'm really excited about that. Our vendors list continues to grow. Uh, which is awesome. We're going to have an, an amazing vendor area with, I mean, if, if you're if you're anybody or anything in the backyard poultry, hobby flock, uh, even small-scale poultry world, um, you're going to be there. If you're not, you are missing out. If you are interested in attending, because I know a lot of uh, uh, businesses listen to this show, if you're interested in attending as a vendor – um, at displaying, and even, yes, we will allow selling your products there from your vendor table, uh, go ahead and contact me because space is limited, uh, cw at chickenwhisperer.com, cw 
at chickenwhisper.com, and we can get you set up as a vendor for uh, Cooptastic. You know what? Uh, if you're not really sure what Cooptastic's all about, just just listen to this. This is fantastic. Are you one of the many Americans that keeps backyard poultry? Do you want to give your birds the best care possible? The Chicken Whispers Cooptastic 2020 Conference will teach you how, plus more, too. Cooptastic will be February 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, 2020 at the beautiful Alabama 4-H Conference Center near Birmingham, Alabama. Educational programs by poultry scientists, veterinarians, and nutritionists, plus fun activities give you an unforgettable experience. Conference packages are available from just for a day to the full experience with meals, entertainment, and lodging. The all-inclusive package is an amazing value at around $300. On-site lodging is limited, so reserve your spot as soon as possible. Visit www.chickenwhisperer.com today for more details. Okay, and not only that, we've got uh, an array of door prizes we're going to be giving away at Cooptastic 2020. Um, right now, the most amazing prize is a uh, backyard chicken coop provided by Urban Coop Company out in Dripping Springs, Texas. You can go to their website, um, uh, urbancoopcompany.com. Uh, check them out. Check out the backyard coop. It's a $1,200 value. Everybody that attends is going to have the same chance to win this awesome coop, $1,200, shipped to your door probably a week or two after you get back from Cooptastic 2020. We've got a uh, mini advanced incubator we're giving away. We have a brooder heater from Brincy Products we're giving away. We also have a Brincy Product automatic coop door we're giving away. Plus, we have an awesome amazing surprise that I was just uh, shown yesterday or the day before, and I'm not letting the cat out of the bag yet, uh, for lack of a better term, but it's going to be – it's a fantastic, just a, a beautiful, beautiful prize, and um, we're not sure if we're going to do that as a door prize or a drawing or a fundraiser or – I'm not really sure yet, but we, we're really lining up the prizes for folks uh, at $299, you cannot beat it. We've got folks attending from California, South Carolina, Wisconsin, Texas, all over the country. So go check us out, cooptastic2020.com. See what it's all about. Register today because there's a limited amount of rooms on a site at that hotel. So come on and register today. You're gonna, it's going to be a, an amazing educational uh, event. But we've got to get on with the show, Poultry Research Translated. We're going to be ending a little bit early today, about 2.45, because – Daddy's got to get his little princess to ballet, and uh, I'm the only one available to do that today. So, uh, um, goodness gracious alive, if she's late to ballet, there'll be heck to pay, I tell you. So, uh, we'll be wrapping the show up at about 2.45 Eastern today. So, let's get on with it. I'm going to bring on my wonderful co-host today, uh, poultry scientist Dr. Bridget McRae, who is also co-hosting Cooptastic 2020, and we're both extremely excited about that Um but, uh, hey, this is my favorite show that you do, Dr. McRae, Poultry Research <laughs> Translated. Uh, by far, you've been on coming on the show for a decade, and this is my favorite because I can learn so much. It's fascinating. And with me being the little uh, uh, debate fanatic that I am, I like to listen to what you say, listen to the science, and then not challenge it, but be like, well, what about this or what about that? So it really gets me thinking. It's, it's uh, designed and, to make you think, right? Yeah, And that's what absolutely. I want your listeners to do is to think critically. And let me tell you, your listeners are not the same people as they were a decade ago when it comes to poultry information. 
So good on you for providing that opportunity for folks to, to learn and grow. Yeah, we've had some amazing questions from them over, over the years, and, and we've seen those questions grow um, intellectually, if you will, uh, as the shows progressed and as people follow and they get into that thinking uh, methodology, I guess, and, 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 and asking those really deep questions. When, and we've seen that over the years, uh, whether it be when we have callers that call in on the podcast or when we do Facebook Lives or uh, emails or, or even post on our Facebook page. So uh, we've definitely uh, seen that uh, as well. And we love it because we And love it's beneficial them. when those folks rub shoulders with other flock owners because that kind of critical thinking, you know, it just it just helps other people, you know, become stronger critical thinkers on behalf of their flock when they start to think about things, um, you know, incrementally in some cases instead of taking giant leaps that, you know, two plus two doesn't equal five, you know, <laughs> so... Um, But today I brought you an article, um, one on ducks, one on beaks, and one on green tea. So I think if we spend about 10 minutes on each of those, um, and don't disappear on me, Andy. I'm going to probably throw some questions your way. Well, Um, I better take some notes. (laughs) Well, just tune in. That's That's all I'm asking. So this first one is a study out of China. It's the one on ducks. And for your listeners who may or may not know this, the the poultry meat of choice there quite often is duck meat or duck eggs. And so it's a much stronger duck market. So it makes sense that those researchers there are doing research on ducks. And so mm-hmm. this study carefully looks at how Pekin ducks, not Peking ducks. Peking ducks is a way to serve a duck as a dish. Pekin is like the broiler chicken of the duck world. Okay. Now is that they that's the fast, one that's done... the, the the solid white with the orange bill, yeah. uh, kind of like the Aflac yeah. duck that we're familiar with. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So those Pekin ducks, they're done in six weeks, just like our broiler chickens are done in six weeks. Um, so they're designed to grow fast. Um, again, white feathers so that you get a cleaner-looking carcass at the end. But this study out of China was looking at the brooding temperature for baby ducks. So they basically said, all right, you know, normal thought is, and this is pertinent to your, your listeners, at least those with Pekins, is sure. we start our baby birds at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, um, but, of course, over there they work in centigrade, so I'll make that translation for folks. Um, we start our birds at 95 degrees Fahrenheit, and we reduce the temperature 5 degrees every week thereafter. And so we slowly get that bird to um, a size and a weight so that they can kind of maintain their own body temperature before um, sticking them outside if we're a backyard flock owner or um, you know, changing the, the housing conditions. And it's ex- Expensive to keep the electricity or heat source running at such a high temperature for so long. So they're kind of looking at it, all right, so if we put Pekin ducks and we look at them carefully for the first two weeks of age, which is that critical growth period where they're still trying to thermoregulate their bodies. Mom helps with that. So in the absence of mom, that's where we 
become really excellent poultry managers on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first two weeks, basically from hatch until day 14, um, they subjected the birds to different temperatures, and they, they used a total of 360 Pekin ducks. They were all males. Um, and what they did is they put them in um, either, and I'm going to do this in, first I'm going to talk about it in, in Celsius, and then I'll translate that to Fahrenheit, okay? So they did 26, 28, 30, 32, 34, and 36. So two <laughs> degrees centigrade different, which wow. for us in America translates to 79 degrees Fahrenheit. 82, 86, 90, 93, and 96.8. So, you know, you're kind of looking at some pretty low temperatures for these baby ducks right out of the egg. 79 degrees Fahrenheit? That's, that's cold for a baby duck. And, 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 that, and a lot of us would be kind of going, ah! But, of course... Um, they did this in chambers, um, temperature and environmentally and light-controlled, ambient temperature-controlled chambers, where they had six pens, each containing ten ducklings, in each of these chambers. So you had replication. Not only did you have ten birds in each group, but you had six of those groups exposed to the same temperature in that chamber, whether it was a, a 90-degree chamber or an 82-degree chamber. Okay. So you've got replication. So what they did is um, depending on, you know, basically day of hatch until seven days of old age, they were at that whatever initial starting temperature. Then they gradually decreased the temperature in that chamber to 26 degrees Celsius or 79 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, if you remember, that lowest chamber temperature was already 79. 79. So that one just basically, it just, you know, it just stayed at 79, just ran itself. But for that, that chamber that was up at 36, over the course of a week, they dropped that temperature down to 79 and saw how, you know, how those ducklings did. So, at two weeks of age, you know, they just basically, you know, fed, watered, you know, lit the the ducklings appropriately. You know, they were on, um, they were on cages, so, you know, droppings fell away. They were just doing their normal duck things that is normal for conventional production in China. And at two weeks of age, those ducks, they, they did body weights, they did weight gains, they did feed intake. And they and then they continued. They put all those ducks out into the same house, okay, okay. and ran that house and gave them all the same feed, all the same water, all the same light. But um, they put it out in the they put them out in the duck barn, and that duck barn um, it fluctuated between twenty two and twenty six degrees Celsius. So that's 71 and a half to 79 degrees. So about another 10 degree drop there, but it was it was you know the fluctuations of normal for that duck house. 
And so they wanted to say, okay, depending on what group those baby ducks were, how did they do later on in life in the duck uh-huh. pond? Uh-huh. Um, so what did they end up with? So essentially, at two weeks of age, um, you kind of got a little general decrease, linear decrease in weight gain, body weight, and feed intake as your brooding temperature increased. And so that was kind of surprising to me. I was like, all right, you're doing good at these higher temperatures. No, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe ducks need something a little different. Um, so as your brooding temperature got closer to the 96 and a half degree mark, you know, there's, they weren't doing as great. Um, there was no difference in the gross performance between ducks that were fed um, at the 26, 28, 30, and 32 degrees C. So that's 79, 82, 86, and 90. Okay. Essentially, the upper temperatures are where you started to see kind of the, mm-hmm, uh-huh. you know, you didn't get as much body weight or gain or feed intake and so they did a um, statistical um, evaluation of the data and found out all right here's the cutoff point where you stop seeing any changes and that was 31 degrees celsius or 87.8 degrees fahrenheit so if you were to run the heat you would only really need to, to run it to about 87 or 88 degrees mm-hmm. Fahrenheit. Then you start, you know, higher than that, you start to get diminishing returns um, on production quality. Um, so, you know, keep in mind, though, the birds that were at the lower end of the brooding temperature, like, say, 26, they weren't gaining quite as much weight and do as well as birds that were closer to 31 degrees Fahrenheit. So that middle group did best. Really, they did the best. So that was interesting. Um, was there? So, was there? You know, basic. Go ahead. Was there a um, like at, at six weeks at, at processing day on processing day at six weeks? Uh, did they notice any difference? in any of these groups at processing weight or were they all at processing they pretty much weighed the same there really wasn't a difference on they as far as processing day did it show what they weighed on processing day like were any less weight or did they catch up that's what i'd be curious rolling down sure the performance traits that they looked at were basically feed conversion ratio body weight feed intake, and body weight gain. Um, They didn't look at parts of the bird or fat pad or anything like that. But, let's see. See, I would look at that. I mean, from a a more lay person regarding poultry, I would be like, man, all I care about is on on week six when I'm processing them because I'm getting paid per pound. If if they were all if, if they were all in that same if they were all in the acceptable range for me, um, then then wow I can keep them at 82 instead of 96, and 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 
well, why, you know, that's that's great for me. I just saved all this money on energy. But at week six, which is, I guess, at the end of the day, all I care about because I'm I'm selling them per the pound, and that's where I'm getting my money. Then I'll just start raising them at 82 instead of 96.8, and I just saved a boatload on my um, electric bill. But but that my outcome is the same. <laughs> if my birds are weighing the same, that's all I care about because I'm making the same amount of money, but I'm saving on my electric okay. bill. Okay, that's, that's what I, I found think the I information that you that you were asking <laughs> me about. Okay. So essentially, okay, so they did look at the overall carcass, and essentially there was no difference in the carcass, okay. the overall carcass. Right. Um, they did look at, they did part the bird out, and, and okay. I'm sorry, folks, I did misspeak. They did look at breast meat and leg meat, and then they did okay. look at it, uh, abdominal fat, and I'm used to calling that fat pad. But um, so as far as, as those different pens I don't see much of a difference. Um, there was a linear and a quadratic effect. I would have to look into that more. But the short-term moral of the story here is that the upper critical temperature is 31C or 87 or 88C. Um, with too low of an initial brooding temperature leading to a little bit of growth depression during the, the growth period, um, essentially. So, yeah, if, if you had to, if you were still looking to maintain um, a certain size carcass, you know, don't pay for the higher brooding temperature. Um, however, all other things being equal and just looking at the temperature, just the temperature, not food, not outdoor access, not lighting. Yeah, you just get essentially get the same bird out yeah. at the end. Yeah. There you go. Right. An interesting little study. I thought your your listeners might find kind of a, a fun one. Uh, no, don't extrapolate too much from that. <laughs> but, um, I figure, and I figured this next one your listeners would really find interesting as well. I did. Okay. really caught my eye. Um, we're going to head to Canada. Great. Um, there is some really awesome research going on at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. They are doing some really cool things there. They've got a really go-getter um, researcher there who's got just a ton of students who are doing fun stuff. But what she did is she's looking at beak tissue and the shape of the beak tissue after infrared beak treatment. Um, I know a lot of people get very worried about um, beak-trimmed birds, but it's not your grandfather's beak trimming, okay? Hot blade is pretty much gone. It's all infrared now, painless for the birds. And the tissue itself, you know, if it gets trimmed and then, you know, it helps prevent feather picking and cannibalism. So one of the things this, this particular study was looking at, you know, when infrared beak treatment is done correctly, um, keeping the equipment up so that you don't get incorrectly trimmed beaks. Um, it's welfare friendly, um, and so 
essentially what happens with infrared beak treatment, folks, um, the handler takes the bird's beak, inserts it into the the machine, um, hits a button, and the beak tip, just the tip, is exposed to infrared light. The light penetrates the outer layer of the beak, and then it damages the underlying tissue layers so that, the, you know, the beak tissue doesn't regenerate. So the just teeny bit of the beak falls off. Um, a few days later, it sloughs off, and the the tissue is damaged so that you don't get regrowth of the beak, um, and it's all gradual. Um, they do the same thing with turkeys. They do the same thing with turkey toes because turkeys, as I have seen in my own yard, um, turkeys do fight and scratch each other and, and um, can get kind of nasty with each other and not just they've got umpty bajillion acres to run around in. They, they, they just go through these stages of, I'm going to be boss turkey. And so, you know, these these um, systems are kind of solutions to the problem. And what they found out is they kind of get um, four groups of beaks when things don't, well, when things um, are looked at in the commercial system. You get kind of what looks like a shovel beak, where the lower beak is longer than the upper beak. And that was quite common hmm. in the hot blade method. Okay. Um, then you've got the step beak, where instead of missing a huge chunk of the upper beak, there's just a teeny tiny bit of the upper beak missing, but still the lower beak is longer than the upper beak. So that's called okay. the step beak. Then you've got the control beak, which... You know, they put the bird in the machine, didn't hit the button, but the bird went through the same procedure as all the other birds. That's that's your control. And then the ideal is what um, people call the um, standard beak. It's where basically your top and your bottom are just slightly trimmed, just like you're supposed to get with the step beak, but the top and bottom are the same length. Okay. Um, so that's, that's the standard beak. And what this particular study did is they looked at, okay, let, they, they put the pullets, and this was all female birds, they put the pullets in cages, and they looked at body weight, feed intake, feed efficiency, and, which I found really interesting, water disappearance. Um, what they did is they... They gave those birds access to nipple drinkers and water fonts like we all use in our backyard sure. system. They just used the little, you know, one liter waters um, and put them in the cages for the first, um, what was the first four weeks. Okay. And that was experiment one. And, and when I say nipple drinkers, we're talking about nipple drinkers that have a 360 degree um, access, so it's basically hanging down from the top of the the pen, and those those birds could go at it from any angle because early on people were worried that depending on the type of beak trimming that you got, you might get um, less access to water or less willingness to touch the nipple drinker because of pain or. Because the the angle that your beak was at, 
Um, so they, they looked at water intake, and they actually measured water intake, which I know can be a little bit challenging. Um, so they did that. Um, the reason why they looked at feed intake is because other research has indicated that, um, you know, at one time body weight and feed intake as the birds kind of reach sexual maturity and enter their laying cycle can, can, can experience some negative effects. So the experiment two, they took those birds and housed them in floor pens um, until they were 18 weeks of age. So, so new set of birds, two replications per treatment. Um, and then they went into conventional cages and they took a look at the um, body weight, feed intake, egg production, and egg quality. So they really did take a longer-term look at these birds, more than just the first month. And what did they find? Um, <coughs> excuse me. So after statistical analysis, um, during experiment one, the type of beak trimming that occurred on the birds really didn't affect much on the feed intake, um, that was the feed be my efficiency, guess. and the body weight. Um, at four weeks of age, the, stand, the um, standard pullets, the one with the top and the bottom were the same, but they were both <laughs> trimmed, were a little bit lighter than the control pullets. However, um, you know, after that age, that difference that they saw disappeared. Um, so, you know, when they when they went on and took a look at the step, which was the tiny bit of the top beak missing and the longer lower beak, and again the standard beak, um, essentially, if you had a step beak or a standard beak, you had lower um, water consumption then control pullets um, when allowed access to the nipple drinkers, but it didn't it didn't result in decreased growth um, <clears throat> throughout the laying period. Um, the chickens that had a, a shovel shaped shaped beak, so uh, a much longer lower beak than the upper beak, had more saleable eggs than even control hens, and basically. That was the only other difference they found. So even though sometimes you can get some small variations in beak shape and, and how that beak tissue sloughs off, essentially it didn't really impact the productivity of the birds. Um, one thing I did forget to mention, right away they used Loman brown birds, and they also uh, yep. used um, <clears throat> the Loman leghorn type bird um, the LSL white I think it was called and um, so it didn't really matter what kind of bird they used it, you know they, they tried it on both kinds of birds which I found to be really kind of a well thought out small study that you know I, I was really quite pleased um, overall birds that drank from the font they drank, on average, um, now this is in grams, 
and you would have to convert this to uh, milliliters or ounces or, or gallons, however you want. But 35.6 grams, the other had 33.9 grams. And the reason why it's reported that way is just for continuity and, and the way students are to, to report things. <clears throat> so essentially, um, for the Loman Brown, it didn't, um, or I'm sorry, for the font, um, it didn't matter at all what kind. It really did not matter what kind of beak shape there was. With the font, they they did just fine. With the nipple drinker, you got a little bit more um, water consumption with the control birds with the normal beak. But, um, yeah, overall, the, the Loman Brown... Um, had a little bit uh, less. Um, let's see what am I looking at here? Less number of saleable eggs with the standard beak, and the Loman White essentially was the same across the board. It didn't matter what kind of, of beak shape it had. So um, yeah, it was really kind of a neat little study, and um, you know if. If I had to do it again, if I were to do this, it might be fun to try a couple other strains to see if there's any other differences and, and do it again and um, do the same parameters. So, my, my, initial, yeah. my initial thought when you were talking about all the different ways that they did the beak trim and then that type, I was in my mind thinking, and this just comes from the occasional, say, scissor beak we've had or, or whatnot, but... Um, my guess was going to be probably not a whole lot of difference of any, just because um, if you look at each beak trim, and this is just my thought process, not that that is a handicap, but animals, humans, whatever, we w we would take some type of a handicap and and overcome it. So if so, I figured they may one breed may have to eat a little bit different than the other based on their beak shape or beak trim but they're still going to find a way to consume that food and drink that water yeah. they may have to again scoop it or tilt their head one way or the other way or this way but that was my whole thought process was um uh that, that there probably wouldn't be a difference just based on how a bird or a human or an ant whatever it may be would learn to overcome that uh to be able to um uh, survive and eat and drink and, and that type of thing. So that's still neat that they did all those different types of beak trims and uh, and were able to uh, look at that. And then the fact that they did water as well, um, because I know with I know, our scissor, I like that. the scissor beaks we've had in the past, we had many, maybe three. Um, we noticed that um, we would have to have, uh, give them maybe a different feeder where they could actually again use the scoop method. Versus, you know, obviously right. picking up individual pieces or, or whatever. So that, that was that study was very interesting to me uh, as well. But that was that was my theory was that well, they would learn. Let's head sure. back on over to China. Okay. This is a study that looked at broiler chickens and green tea powder. So they basically wanted to see the effect of green tea powder given to broilers mixed in with the feed um, alone mixed with antibiotics and um, well, I'm not doing a good job of explaining this, so <laughs> let me start again. Four treatments, all right? Control. 
no additions whatsoever, normal diet, okay? There was the second treatment was a antibiotic in the in the diet, and it was four ten thousandths of a percent of antibiotics. So not a lot of antibiotics, okay? <laughs> um, then then there was the next treatment, which was one percent green tea powder. And the last one was antibiotics at that same percent, um, four ten thousandths of a percent, and also one percent green tea powder. Okay. Okay, I've so read it down. Really okay. Um, they used um, male broilers, um, six replicates for each of those four diets, twelve broilers in each, um, in, in each replicate. So they had a total of two hundred and eighty-eight birds. Okay. Um, so essentially, and I know we don't have much time left here, but essentially they took the broilers and raised them up to 42 days of age, mm-hmm. and they found that the broilers with the green tea powder treatment had lower body weight gain during their first three weeks, but they tended to increase their body weight during the latter parts, so the last, mm, last three weeks okay so not a whole lot going on in the first three weeks but yay for the last three weeks of grow out Um, okay (laughs) and the feed conversion ratio was not changed um, upon the inclusion of of any green tea powder supplement Um, and that's for the entire production period so yay if you're adding green tea powder um, you're not going to see a whole lot of difference in in the ratio that they used, which was 1%. They also looked at the muscle. The leg muscle was high, proportionately high, and the abdominal fat was proportionately low in the green tea powder group as compared with the just antibacterial or antibiotic group. The lightness value, the shear force, and the calcium content now, those are all important when it comes to meat science, and I'll explain just in a moment what that all means. Okay. Lightness value, shear force, and calcium content of the green tea powder group were lower in the breast meat compared to the, antibi- or the bac- antibiotic group. Sorry. <laughs> keep wanting to say antibacterial. <laughs> um, antibiotic group. Okay. So they found higher redness value and higher intermuscular fat in the breast muscle in the green tea powder group. Now that those the lightness and the um the redness that's important because sometimes when you include new ingredients or you've got a strain that's that's under pressure to grow fast, you can get something what's called pale soft exudative meat. And so it's basically meat that that's way too pale it can't hold water um it's soft and mushy to the touch it's like the exact opposite of woody breast tissue which is another problem yeah so the fact that green tea powder kind of adds a little bit of pinkness or redness to the breast meat that's good um you're combating some of that problem Um, they also took a few birds from each of those groups on a regular basis and you know, tested the gut for bacteria, and they found 
that when you add green tea powder as a supplement to the the diet, you uh-huh. got a higher lactobacillus number in the gut, uh-huh. and it also uh-huh. inhibited E. coli numbers. So that's good. They found that in the ilium and the cica as the birds, and that was mostly during the last. Um, what is that? The last two weeks of grow out, which is when you're kind of worried about, you know, if something should happen in the plant and the gut should tear, you don't want a whole lot of bacteria spilling all over the carcass and bad bacteria would be, well, bad. Um, So they found that essentially you could add green tea powder as a feed additive to include, you know, improve meat color and improve lactobacillus numbers and Although the things were kind of equal, it wasn't so so far of a stretch. And so, where would you go next with this study, Andy? Where what would your next step be if you had to to, to continue this work if you were a student? Oh, geez. Um, see, I'm still in, in that thought process of okay, when they go to processing, um, what? How much more did it cost me to add? cost for the product, the green tea, and then, you know, th- essentially there wasn't any difference at all. Maybe a few positives, but so I'd have to So you would go the act. economic route? I would go I would always, especially with big poultry, as I would go the economic route, the time of me having to buy the, the product, the time to deliver the product. And then at the end of the day, um, would, would, would those little positives I got from this make a hill of beans difference, really, at the end of the day? Am I still selling all my chickens, or is anybody going to notice okay. that little extra color Good. in the breastfeed or um you know or not and say yay or nay is it worth it or not at the end of the day now my brain immediately said okay they got benefits at one percent what is what is the least amount or the most amount that you could add That's to it. see changes in any of the benefits mm-hmm. i mean if you increase to five percent do you get an even greater lactobacillus effect and then again, is it price conscious to do so? Is it enough of an effect to to be worth adding it in there? And and I don't even know how much green tea powder goes for, but you know, of course, it's much more readily available in China, and and hence the work was done there. Yeah. But there you go, are Andy. You, Those are, are the three you, that I wanted to bring to you so that you could make it in time for ballet. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Or if you did increase it to five percent. If, if if you got an increase in those positives, but maybe some type of negative would pop up at that amount. Say, oh, we did 5%. We did, we did get a little bit better of this, but we saw a decrease in, in that. Now, initially you said the first, I forget what it was, two or three weeks, there was some slower growth um, yes. in, in those birds. But they did catch up. I remember you talking uh, about that. Right. So, um, okay, interesting. Uh, and yeah, okay, cool. No, all of them were great. They were all pertinent because I've done broilers before, <laughs> and and I know that you did the green tea study on the um, uh, what was that? The green coccidiosis. tea coccidiosis, right? So that I thought that's where you were going with this, and I like the beak trim because I've experienced the scissor beak, and uh, and then of course that temperature, and I, I've done a little plan around with that here um, with our uh, bovins brown. Uh, and um, I kept when you were talking about the temperature study, I kept thinking about. And, and, and I shouldn't do this, but I know a lot of people when I'm trying to share some science, they've always fall back on, 
Well, what about the wild ducks in the wild? They don't have any heaters other than the mama, and then surely it's not 79 degrees. So, so my mind, un- unfortunately, was kind of going through that, going, I think that they probably would do okay with, without babying them with, with all of this heat. The other thing that I was thinking about with that, because you said that they're – the there wasn't a big growth. I'm trying to think on that first feed study with the ducks. I want to say the ones with the lighter temperature or a lower temperature had a better weight gain. And I, my mind when you were discussing that was thinking so maybe so the, maybe the they're eating to keep warm. <laughs> the 26 degrees Celsius, they didn't gain as well as those that were closer to 31 degrees Celsius. So gotcha. yeah, there there was a kind of, you know, when you go too high, there's a point of diminishing return. And when you go too low, you're going to kind of slow things down there too. But right there in the yeah. middle. And that that could be, and again, I'm thinking if it's too hot, it's like, man, it's hot. I'm not, you know, you're too hot to eat. It's too hot to eat. So I'm not, and then yeah. if you're too you're cold, you might be just trying to be warm. But in that middle area, that's where the sweet spot is to, uh, to encourage them to eat like they should and as much as they should and as often as they should. So I, those were my thought processes on all of these. So, But thank you so much for coming on. Again, folks, you can see why this is always my favorite show with Dr. McRae, Poultry Research Translated, because uh, oftentimes she'll pick things that relate right here to my farm, things I've experienced in the past, which so I'm sure it also can relate to a lot of you who are listening. So thank you very much, Dr. McRae, for coming on today with Poultry Research Translated, and we'll see you back here in, in, a, in a couple of weeks, and we'll continue to chat offline about Cooptastic 2020. <laughs> Fair enough. Have a good week. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Alrighty, folks, that's going to wrap up another great episode of Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Today, my guest was poultry scientist Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D. over at uh, Auburn University, Poultry Research Translated. If you missed any of the show, it will be archived for your listening pleasure here in just a few minutes. And uh, we appreciate you tuning in and visit us at CW, or actually chickenwhisperer.com. And check out all the other opportunities we have for education out there in the poultry uh, world, (coughs) including... Uh, of course, including the magazine, Chicken Whisperer Magazine, and of course, this podcast and the books that are available to you. So uh, we really appreciate you tuning in, and we'll see you back here next Thursday on Blog Talk Radio. This has been Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer with your host, Andy Schneider. For more information, find us on the web at chickenwhisperer.com, on Facebook by typing in The Chicken Whisperer, on Twitter at Backyard Poultry, and on Instagram at The Real Chicken Whisperer. Thanks for listening.